please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Before we read and can even begin to understand today's story in Matthew's gospel, we've got to see what's been going on with Jesus in Jerusalem. If you're our guest today, uh, or if you haven't been with us in some time, uh, we've been going through this gospel, and you really can't capture the drama of this passage without seeing what's going on. So let's do a little review. It's Passover week in Jerusalem, a city with about 30,000 permanent residents hosts as many as 180,000 visitors as they come to celebrate, worship, and make sacrifices at the magnificent temple in the center of the city. So if you want, you want to get a feel of what it was like in Jerusalem, think of the crowds that come to a city for the Super Bowl or the World Cup or the World Series. Jesus and his disciples arrived earlier in the week along with the crowds of pilgrims. At the end of their climb up the mountain from Jericho, Jesus gets on a donkey to ride into the city. And as he does, the crowd begins to celebrate his arrival with praises to God, along with declarations that Jesus, the son of David, is blessed by God. He's somebody really special. It's an ironic event because the crowd acts like Jesus is entering as a king, though he looks like a peasant riding on a donkey. The city is caught by surprise. No one, no one expected this. Who is this guy? The crowds respond that he is the prophet, Jesus. Upon entering the city, Jesus proceeds to the outer court of the temple and he confronts the men who ran the banks that exchanged foreign money for temple money so the pilgrims could purchase what they needed to make sacrifice and give offerings and pay the temple tax. These men ran a very profitable business, which Jesus called a ripoff. They had, he said, turned the temple into a den of robbers. So Jesus walks up, and flips their tables, scattering coins all over the ground. Now, if the authorities were curious upon his initial entrance to the city, this has gotten their attention. And it leads to a series of confrontations over the next few days. First, the chief priests and the elders confront him directly with a who-do-you-think-you-are question. Jesus is not at all intimidated he proceeds to tell them three parables that make them look really bad. The crowd seems to be on Jesus' side. In a city bursting with outsiders, the rulers realize that the crowd could turn into a mob and turn over more than the bankers' tables. So they do what politicians have done throughout the ages. <laughs> Rather than using direct force, they tried to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the crowd. So last week, Larry showed us how the Pharisees confronted Jesus with what they thought was a brilliant question. 
what is your theological position on paying Roman taxes? Given Jesus' popularity, they set a trap, assuming that there's no way Jesus will support the oppressive Roman tax. And if he publicly rejects the tax, the rulers can send the Romans to arrest him as an insurrectionist. Jesus replies that if you have money with Caesar's image stamped on it, it belongs to him. And if you have God's image stamped on you, you belong to him. And this response only makes Jesus more popular with the crowd. So another group approaches him, the group we're going to read about right now, called the Sadducees, on that same day. Please read with me, beginning in Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no children. He left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read... What it was said to you by God, I am quoting Exodus 3, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Another great confrontation story where the tables get turned. It's so wonderfully dramatic and it's just thrilling to think about. If you want to understand it, I think we need to answer three questions. That's what I'm going to seek to do today. Number one, what did the Sadducees want? Number two, what was the Sadducees' argument? And number three, what does Jesus reveal? So to start, what did the Sadducees want? Sadducees were a very small party of elite Jews. They were not popular with the people in general, but they were sought after by the rich and the powerful. They gave theological cover to those in power for how they lived and how they ruled. Today, you would find Sadducees on the faculties of Harvard and Yale. Two things stand out in their theology. The first thing is they said that only the five books written by Moses had any real authority. Other books that the Pharisees may find as biblical had no authority, according to the Sadducees, 
unless you could find what those books said in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. Second, the Sadducees rejected the popular Jewish belief that there is life after death. This was a belief in the resurrection that increasingly grew within the Jewish community over the few hundred years before Jesus was born. It's only found explicitly, this might, you might find this interesting, in the entire Old Testament, there are only two explicit references to resurrection, one in Daniel and one in Isaiah. But the Sadducees said, if you couldn't find it in Moses' books, it just wasn't true. Now, it's pretty obvious from reading this, their motive was terrible. But they did ask a legitimate question. <laughs> Plenty of people in Israel were widowed and then remarried. A woman might wonder, could that mean I'll have two husbands in heaven? So you can see the insidious nature of what the Sadducees are doing because they're raising a legit question in people's minds. But coming from the Sadducees, this was no sincere question. They weren't seeking to learn. They were seeking to slander. Now, we can know something of their motive by looking at, for example, John 11. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin, of which the Sadducees would be a part, gathered to figure out what to do about the Jesus problem. The Apostle John quotes them in their deliberations. This is what we find in Scripture. They say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they concluded as a council that they needed to seek out a way to murder Jesus. The Sadducees, along with the high priest and the Pharisees, didn't want to lose their place, didn't want to lose their positions of power, with, which brought with it respect and wealth. So as this story is being set up, I want to I want to just take a moment and let's just look in for a minute because a lot of times when you have a villain story, you know, the villains are all bad, which and if I see them as bad, must be I'm good. But we got to be careful because we can be prone to the same motives. Have you ever questioned God's will or God's word because if you obey it it will cost you your place your job your money your home your reputation your comfort and ease your safety so we are all prone to the sadducees temptations but let's move on number two what was the sadducees argument now, what the Sadducees are doing is the classic gotcha question. We are all familiar with gotcha questions. If you follow political media at all, I'll give you an example. 
The journalist comes and asks the senator, Senator, when did you stop beating your wife? And the senator answers, I've never beat my wife. And the following day, a story appears in the news media. Senator denies beating his wife. This kind of thing happens all the time. The Sadducees had the convenient theology of an 18th century deist. That was the founders of our nation. Many of them were deists. The deist would say there is a God, but he is distant and he's uninvolved in our lives. Our focus should be on living a good and upstanding moral life, enjoying the good things of this world. There's no real spiritual realm. There's no angels, no spiritual beings who might influence our lives. And when our bodies die, so do our souls. There's no afterlife. This life is all there is. There's no resurrection. So what the Sadducees decided to do is lay a trap by connecting a command in the law of Moses with the idea that people will have a resurrected life after death. He brings these two things, they bring these two things together. So first I have to explain the command that they quote in verse 24. This is a practice within marriage that goes all the way back to the earliest days that the Bible records, back to Jacob and his sons. This law was probably practiced in other cultures. This is what it said. It said if a woman's husband dies and the couple has no children, her husband's brother must marry her and bear children through her. But here's the catch. The children will carry the deceased brother's name and inherit the deceased brother's property when they become adults. So you really have to invest in these children, but you really don't get the benefit of your investment later in life. The Bible states that this would allow the, fa- the, the man's family line to continue among the people of God. But the practice would also protect the widow who would have a household to care for her even into her old age. The Sadducees' argument is if there is no, a resurrection from the dead, which they deny, then you have to explain how a woman who has been widowed and remarried to her brothers-in-law seven times will live in heaven. Which husband would be hers? All Seven? It's ludicrous. If our existence here on earth will continue in heaven as the Sadducees assume about the resurrection, so will a marriage. Beyond that, the Bible, at least the Bible they accept, the books of Moses, says nothing about the resurrection. So they conclude the resurrection is a ridiculous idea and Jesus is worthy of ridicule. As I said, their intent is to get Jesus to deny the resurrection and lose the crowd. It's a gotcha question, and any way Jesus answers will make him look bad. (laughs) So number three, what does Jesus reveal? Jesus' response, and any of you who have been trained in debate would know this, he immediately goes after their premise. 
they assume that life in the resurrection will be identical to life here on earth. So Jesus calls out their ignorance. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Given how little space the Old Testament gives the resurrection, you would expect Jesus to quote Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live, their body shall rise. Or Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And if you did quote those passages, what would the Sadducees say? They say, well, that's not the Bible. It's not authoritative. Only the books of Moses can apply. And they say nothing about resurrection. So Jesus shows them by quoting their favored books that resurrection is in the scriptures, even in the books of Moses. Now, when Jesus quotes this, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, of course, Moses was the Sadducees' hero. And that is from the story of Moses encountering God in a burning bush. Do you remember the story? Moses is tending sheep on the side of a mountain. And he sees a bush that's on fire. Now that's not unusual since the desert can be tinder dry. And any lightning strike can ignite a fire. What gets Moses' attention is it's burning and it doesn't stop burning. And so he thinks, I've got to go check this out. There he discovers that the bush is burning with the fire of God. The ground around it, God speaks and says to Moses that it's holy ground. He's to take off his shoes. As Moses bows down and tells God, that he is called, uh, God tells Moses that he has called him to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And this is how God identifies who he is to Moses, who it is that's sending Moses to deliver the people. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus goes on to say that this shows that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So God is presently the God of Abraham who lived 600 years before Moses. Jesus' argument is that God has the power to raise the dead and the power to create a heaven in which humans become like angels. And there's evidence of this existence beyond death in how God speaks to Moses about his relationship to the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So rather than humiliating Jesus, these upper-class Sadducee hotshots are humiliated themselves. They don't even know the little bit of Bible that they claim to be Scripture. And that's the end of the story. An ironic reversal. The Sadducees hang themselves with their own rope. The crowd is astonished. The cynical Sadducees have failed. Now what I'm going to tell you is that there's more to this, way more to this, than might 
first meet the eye. So let's take a deeper look. First thing we have to recognize is that Jesus' argument does not depend on speaking about Abraham in the present tense. Do you see that in verse 32? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Jesus was not making an argument based on grammar, based on the present tense. You could look at Jesus' argument, and if you were in a debate with Jesus, you could say, well, all that means is I'm the same God who was God when Abraham was alive, and I'm the same God who was alive when Isaac was alive. It could mean that God is still present and alive, though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are long dead and gone. Do you see that? So at first you think, oh, slam dunk argument. And I think the crowd got it that way, and we get it that way, and that is true. But there's more to it that is revealed in verse 29 that we as modern Americans can easily miss. It has to do with a word that Jesus uses with the Sadducees in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know. That's the word I want to focus on. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know your Bible and you don't know God's power. Now what do we think about when we think of knowledge? what we know. Okay, in the modern age, and this is the world all around, this is how we all tend to think, knowledge is information, data. So I know that Queen Elizabeth died last week. And I know that two plus two equals four. In our minds, knowledge is a thing that you possess. And if you can possess it, you can use it. And so knowledge opens the door to power. Knowledge becomes a tool, a tool of power. That is not how the Bible defines knowing a thing or knowing a person or knowing God. The Bible defines knowledge as a relationship. It can be a relationship with things. Okay, think about a baseball player who can hit a curveball. Okay, he's not standing at the plate thinking about fluid dynamics and physics and how a ball rotated at an angle after moving about 80 feet will drop down to the ground. That's not the knowledge. The hitter has a relationship with the baseball. He has to adjust because he knows the ball and how it behaves, and the ball adjusts in ways that are according to the world around him. So hitting the ball is a relational thing. It's not a mental, informational thing. Do you see that? Same thing with relationships with 
people. I know my wife Nancy, not because I have compiled 48 years of data on her. Okay, and you can look it up on my hard drive. I know her because I've known her in an, in an intensely varied and rich relationship as my wife for 45 years. I have 45 years of back-to-back interaction, observation, things about her that I never even thought about, but because I've lived with her, I know her, and she knows me. This also applies to our relationship with God. But that relationship begins and ends with him. It's dependent on God knowing us. Once God knows us, we enter into relationship with him. Now, it's not that God doesn't have information about everybody in the universe, every molecule in the universe, but he has relational knowledge. And when he comes to know me, he's inviting me into a relationship where I can come to know him. And so back and forth we relate and get to know each other as he comes to me. When God came to Abraham, who he reminds Moses that he is the God of Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham. In that covenant, he made promises to him. And Abraham responded to God, the God who knew him, by doing things that were in keeping with the promises. So Abraham moved his entire family to a foreign land. Not the kind of thing you did in that day, by the way. Abraham sought to bear children even though his wife was beyond the years of childbearing. Abraham remained faithful to God even though he died with only one son and the only land he owned, the only part of the promised land that he owned was a burial plot for his wife. Abraham knew God and he lived out of that knowledge. So what happened to Abraham? God made a covenant with him. He established a relationship And that transformed everything about Abraham's life. Abraham risked his entire life and future on that promise because he'd been transformed by a relationship. Abraham knew God. Jesus is saying in his response to the Sadducees that this covenant that established the knowledge of God is rooted in all of Scripture. It's a relationship that cannot be broken. Once God has come to know you, you respond with your whole life. And in that responsive relationship, you know Him. You believe in Him. You obey Him. This is the covenant that God spoke of when he encountered Moses in the burning bush. It's a covenant that doesn't burn out. It's eternal. 
Well, now we can begin to see a connection with resurrection. The power of this covenant that God has made us in coming to know us and us coming to know Him, its power doesn't just continue from one generation to another. Its power is such that the relationship continues even after death. You get that? Once God knows you and binds himself to you, that relationship is eternal. It transforms how you think and how you live in this life. And it transforms you after you die so that you dwell with God in heaven in a world of love that no longer requires marriage in the fulfillment of the covenant. This covenant that powerfully transforms a people in this life and beyond this life into a life after death doesn't need a few proof texts in the Bible. This is the theme of the entire Bible. So when Jesus says to the Sadducees, you don't know the Scriptures, they don't. And it's not because they forgot what happened in Exodus 3. The Sadducees didn't know the power of God to change their lives because they rejected what God had revealed to them in Scripture. And they had not entered into this powerful, life-transforming relationship with God who was standing there in their presence in the temple courts in the person of Jesus Christ. He had come to them, but they did not want to know Him because they didn't know the Scripture. And they didn't want to know the Scripture because if they knew the Scripture, it would change everything. The Sadducees had reduced God down to a distant being who took little notice of them and who gave them some simple rules to follow so they could prosper in this life up to the day they died, after which nothing. They defined God as beyond relationship so they could live apart from him. Jesus spoke of a relationship of word and power working together. The word defines the power. The power works within the word. And Jesus Christ is both. So rather than being impressed with Jesus' debating skills, this passage confronts each one of us. Do I know God? Does God know me? Have I encountered him in his son, Jesus Christ? Has this knowledge transformed me? How I think? How I live? Do I trust Him in our relationship so that I will do whatever He requires even if it costs me what I want? Or do I try to live the life, a a Christian light life, L-I-T-E? Do I try to be a Sadducee-like Christian? Do I consider Jesus a distant God and follow him by keeping to a few rules, going to church and avoiding scandalous sins? God has come to know us in Jesus Christ. He's brought us 
into relationship with him through Jesus' death. So there are no longer, as we just sang repeatedly this morning, there's no longer any barriers in the relationship. We don't have to cower in fear. He's coming to us, and He's coming to us as a father to a child. He's coming to us in love. And when we see that He took it upon Himself to forgive our sins and come down to us, it transforms us. That's the power of God. And that transformation which began in this life will continue beyond this life into a life with God in heaven after our death. This is the whole message of Scripture. Not a few proof texts. God has come down to us to know us. God has come down to us that we might know Him. And in that relationship, by the power of God and by the written Word of God, we are changed. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that we are prone to put You in a nice tight container like the Sadducees did that keeps you from impinging on our lives, coming down to see us and know us, and in that knowing us, that we would know you and be transformed by what we know. We open our hearts to you. Come and change us transform us. Lord, our hearts are prone to control. We want control. We want control over our lives. And it can be really hard to see that our control really doesn't get us where our hearts want to go. I pray all those, everyone here who is avoiding you, Fear and you'll take something away that is really good. But as you come to them and know them, they would come to know you. And that all of us would encounter this transformative power today and trust in that power to transform us from our death into resurrection and eternal life. Pray for this in Jesus' name.